This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It's a mystery. The deaths of Toronto billionaire couple and philanthropists Barry and Honey Sherman. It's a story that's gripped the city, a story that's been unfolding since Friday when their bodies were found inside their North Toronto mansion by a real estate agent. He was 75. She was 70. Postmedia CEO Paul Godfrey was friends with the Shermans. He's been speaking to a number of media outlets about his shock on finding out about their deaths. And he's also spoken about how they were as a couple. They were very different. Uh, Barry was a confirmed workaholic. I, I jokingly said to Barry that uh, if I looked up the definition of workaholic, I'd probably see his picture uh, in the dictionary. And uh, uh, he was quiet. Uh, he wasn't really a, a social person. He, he enjoyed his uh, Apotex company with his employees and would work seven days a, a week. Uh, even when he went on holidays, I think he spent uh, most of the time on the phone. Honey, on the other uh, hand, uh, was very outgoing, uh, uh, would never take no for an answer, especially if she's working on a charitable cause, and uh, was was a leader. There's no doubt about that. Uh, in the same way, uh, Barry was the, uh, the workaholic, uh, Honey was really the philanthropist. They've also been described as extremely generous with their fortune, donating millions to various causes, which were particularly near and dear to Honey Sherman's heart, from higher education to health care to the Jewish community. As I reported all morning on Zoomer Radio News, Toronto police say both Barry and Honey Sherman died from ligature neck compression. Homicide investigators have taken the lead on the case, although police are still classifying their deaths as suspicious. Paul Godfrey also commented on reports through the weekend of speculation on what may have led to their deaths. I know that uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people are probably sitting at the edge of their seat waiting to find out what really happened. Uh, There's been a lot of rumors and uh, that's the worst thing when rumors uh, can't be either confirmed or denied completely, um, which leads to a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of probably missing parts of the puzzle yet. And I think we have to uh, be patient uh, with the uh, police department. Many unanswered questions, and without delving into speculation ourselves, we do want to help you understand the process involved in this police investigation. And so for this analysis, our security expert, Ross McLean, joins me in studio. Welcome, Ross. Good day. Good day. Yes. Uh, And it really has gripped the city, this story. It has. Um... You know, normally I like to say I'm, I'm glad to be here and that, that sort of thing, talking about this. But this is a, this is a very dark uh, story and a moment for this family, for this city, uh, for a lot of reasons. The passing of, of these two people. And as uh, the clips you just played from Paul Godfrey, when there's a vacuum uh, left by the police not really filling in or giving too many of the details or the motivations behind some of this, 
then rumors start to come up and people start to try to figure out what went on because there are people who want an explanation for this. I mean, they, they, they love this couple. This is such a well-known couple. People cannot believe, and certainly the family could not believe, uh, that this has happened. Will the truth come out? Will we hear from police about what really happened? Will they be able to solve the case? You know, it's interesting. I was at, I went to the scene uh, when this happened on the Friday. I happened to actually be in the local division working on something else for somebody uh, when it started to light up on my phone that there was this problem in the, in the division, and I went over to look at it, and... They had the police spokesman person came down, David Hopkinson from the uh, the radio room came down, and he was very being very coy about it, almost indicating somewhere between uh, we don't know if it's a criminal or we don't know if it's a private matter, and we're not going to and they would not confirm who the victims were or who the deceased were. Maybe victims is the wrong word here. Who the deceased were at the time? They said we're not. That's up to the family to release. So, I think that there's an issue somewhere struggling between privacy and the public's right to know and what police feel confident in saying. So it's leaving, it's leaving a vacuum for just so many people who really out of care rather than out of morbid curiosity, I think, would like to know what happened here. Is the public ultimately owed an explanation of what happened, or is this something, and we'll talk to our communications expert today, Laura Babcock, about this as well, is this something that should be kept private? Normally, and I'm sure Laura can speak to this uh, very well, but normally what I tell clients to do is when you have an issue happen, get out as much information as you can that's objective information that's not subjective. So, for instance, when you have a plane crash, you'd say the type of plane, how old it was, who the pilots were, how many people. So you give as much information as possible without uh, breaking any privacy here. But that's not really what's happened here. It's been, it, the cards are really being held closely to the vest of the police. They've, they issued a, a very short um, press release the other night with the cause of death that really created more questions than it did answers. So you've worked in law enforcement yourself. You still do. Um, can you confirm to us there is likely information that is known but has not been revealed to the public out of uh, courtesy to the family? I would absolutely suspect that. Normally when uh, the police, when they come upon uh, scenes like this, uh, I mean, they had the the forensic pathologist attended at the scene to look at the scene and, and the bodies. And that's the one who's you know knows all the things to look for. The coroner also attended at the scene uh, to look at the scene to do it. And at that time, they did not seem, uh, deem it to be a homicide with any suspects. It was just a suspicious death investigation. So I have no doubt that the police, um, from looking at the scene, uh, the conditions uh, of the body positioning and whatever information may be available from uh, cameras or, or others that's associated things with the house will know much more of what went on, but we're not really hearing that. Speaking with security expert Ross McLean here about uh, the Shermans who were found dead in their home on Friday. Um, let's talk about what we do know from police. Ligature neck compression. That is the cause of death for both Barry and Honey Sherman. Tell us what can cause ligature neck compression, deadly. Well, and this gets into some of the forensics and some of the area where there's some uh, speculation or, or room here. But just generally speaking, 
Uh, you know, ligature refers to something that was used to put around the neck, to compress the neck. And generally speaking, it's uh, what causes the death there is the pressure on the arteries in the neck, not so much the lack of being able to breathe is generally what causes the death for that. And there's ways that they can tell through the autopsy of looking at the, the blood and other things as to what the cause was. And this is what they determined on it. Now, what's interesting here is there's different variations that go on with this. You, we've, all, we've heard about before about kids in the playground with a hoodie on or something like that, right? That gets caught in the jungle gym or something and they fall down and they, and they get killed. That's the same sort of thing. That could be the same. It can be by accident. It can also be how when someone is killed on purpose by someone behind them grabbing them and pulling a cord around the neck sort of thing to kill them. So there's, there's those avenues of it. There's and I, and I apologize for getting into a little graphic about this, but just to explain the, the nature of what they'd be looking at. So if it's usually when someone did it to someone else, the marks and the wounds around the neck tend to be horizontal. That means they go kind of even with the collar. If it was someone who, who uh, was hung, it would tend to be more of a going up and down from the neck to the back, top, back of the neck, an angle indicating that there was some weight and that's how the compression was caused by the weight of the body. The police didn't really specify that. Right. They did not say ligature neck compression by strangulation, nor did they say by hanging for either. Right. So th- this is something, I guess, that they're, they're deciding for right now. They want to figure out how to manage this. And perhaps there just is more for them to look into to, for that, to make an absolute determination. So I, I, I think that, you know, and just typically... Let's not talk about this case per se, because we don't know in this case. And as you said, I don't want to speculate about mm-hmm. this case. But what typically police will do when they have someone who's, who's been murdered, they'll talk not only about their wounds, but they'll talk about things like if there's defensive wounds. So, for instance, if someone comes up to strangle you and you start grabbing at your neck and you stick your nails into their hands or things like that, you'll get scratch marks on people or blood and things under fingernails and defensive wounds, they t- typically call them. They've made no comment about any other evidence uh, that is there. And and obviously, there'll be a wealth of evidence that's there to look at. I'm not saying that that's the case here. I'm just saying these are the sort of things that they take in. You know, when it comes to forensic work, the beauty of forensic work is it doesn't lie when it's collected correctly. And it's hard to fake. It's there and it tells you more or less a story of what happened. And I guess that's what everybody's looking for in this one is is what happened really and and then why. How responsible is it of the news media for us to ask someone like you whether, based on what the police are saying, it looks like a certain scenario, be it, um, you know, a double suicide or a murder suicide, or was there a perpetrator who had a key to the house and was able to get in and out? Is that fair of me to ask you that? I think it's fair. One of the things I I try to bring when I comment on incidents in the news, security, terrorism, I try to bring a bit more of an investigative eye to it than a police eye, because police are restricted in what they can say that's official that goes down on a report. And they're used to, uh, is particularly, it's it's actually interesting when you find some people like our, our, our great chief, Chief Saunders, who I think is a great chief, by the way, uh, for doing some work. He worked in homicide for a long time and ran it for a long time. So I noticed when he was doing some of his first press conferences, he really didn't like being asked questions because he's used to not answering questions. He's used to keeping his cards down till he plays them in court. Uh, he's gotten much better at that as the time goes by. And so I'm hoping that the police will be able at some point 
uh, in conjunction with the family to be able to uh, give some more information that gives gives peace to people. You know, Jane, one of the things, uh, when I first started so long ago on the police department, that we went in and they taught us how to do death notifications. And, you know, it's one of the toughest things you can do. They said, when you walk up to a house, here's some of the, here's some of the reactions you can expect. And they told us, you go up and you tell someone, particularly if it's a tragic death, you have to say, I'm sorry, your daughter or your son died in an accident or something like that. They said, be prepared to defend yourself because they might try and hit you. And we're like, I'm like, what? Mm. People go into such denial over wanting to hear this. Who is this awful person bringing me this awful news? It's the and whole they, don't shoot the messenger thing. They And people will want to shoot yeah. the messenger. That yeah. can be one of the things. I said, And you also have to be ready to catch the person in case they faint. Right. And they do stuff. So it's it's one of the toughest things that, uh, that police have to deal with and people have to deal with is coping with knowing. So one of the reasons why people get brought to hospitals to see the body or they bring you into the coroner to identify and things like that. One of the reasons is so people can have some finality to it. Otherwise, in their mind, they're thinking that can't be true. They must be somewhere else. We just saw that with the Laura Babcock trial that, you know, he was claiming, oh, no, she's alive. She's off somewhere saying things like that. So there's a certain finality that comes with seeing the body and the forensic evidence. It gives people peace. And I think that the public and the friends and the family of the Shermans, uh, they would love to just have some peace about this and then remember them for their lives. I'm speaking with Ross McLean about the Sherman deaths and how much information and how little information has been given by Toronto police. Was it a mistake right away to say that there were no suspects? Because that automatically leaves you with with one of the two people who are deceased as being a suspect or both of them together if it's a suicide pact. Well, it opens up that opportunity. And the police say that because they don't want other people in the area to worry and be concerned. And one of the things the police do, and they did it in this case as well, is they brought out a lot of police on foot who went door to door, going to other houses, speaking to people, looking for witnesses, uh, trying to gather any CCTV information from people's cameras in that area that may help with the investigation down the line. But the police typically say that because that's a responsible thing to say if there's no concern. If if, if they knew that there was a suspect out who had just murdered someone, it's not responsible not to say that. Now, help us understand, uh, in this short release last night from Toronto Police, they said that it is uh, being led by the Toronto Homicide Squad, the investigation, and yet the deaths are deemed suspicious. Help us square that. I can't help you square that. I, I really can't help you square that. It's it's interesting that the way that it gets put. Um, I mean, the only thing that we can square that with is because of the importance of this investigation and in order to perhaps let the family know that the best and the finest resources are being used to look into this, that's why they're having the Homicide Squad look at it. As I said, I know the people over at 33 Division, they've got great detectives there and everything else, but I'm sure this family wants, you want to assure them to the nth degree that you're doing what you can. You know, people do not get to see, Jane, quite often the... um, the pain and the work that police go through in dealing with the, these families of people who've passed away like this, it, it can, in some cases for these officers and, it, you know, it just sears into their heart for the rest of their life for doing it. So they want to make sure they're doing the right thing for the family. And I guess they're going to let the public, 
you know, wait until they make sure they've looked after the family well. The nature of the news media and uh, publications, uh, magazine publications, such as Toronto Life, this is a story that they are going after right now. So there will be a full expose, likely in print at some point, about what happened. Will the police have revealed what happened before this kind of media is exposed to the public? I don't know when when they're going to. Like I say, I'd like to see the I like to see the family and the police come forward with a statement that makes people feel more comfortable about what happened and how it's been dealt with. But I have no doubt that there will be uh, magazines and places that are going after this hard. But you know, also understand. I mean, this man uh, was a multi billionaire. He was in a very very tough business. I mean, my understanding is he'd have a hundred suits. Uh, ongoing every day on his desk, and he was a hands-on operator, as we heard from Mr. Godfrey say at the start. He wasn't afraid of a fight. He wasn't afraid of being sued. But all those people are going to have an interest now if they've got lawsuits outstanding as to what happened here and how it happened. There was just some recent litigation that mm-hmm. the family was involved in for dealing with things like that. So there'll be lots of people that will be going after this, and there'll be discovery, legal discovery on different issues and things like that. So, I mean, that that will come out. So the police... I think they're just going to work with the family, and hopefully they'll be able to say something. I mean, they're getting ready to make their funeral arrangements now and things like that. So hopefully we'll be able to hear something. I know you've been enjoying this conversation and the information that Ross McLean has been providing uh, us as much as I have. It's it's one of those topics. Normally, we invite you to call in. And certainly, if you have a question of Ross uh, or our communications expert, you're welcome to call in and ask uh, out of respect for the family and their wishes and the fact that Toronto police have decided to um, uh, disseminate the information slowly or in a more methodical way, uh, we are going to observe uh, and be respectful of that as well here on Zoomer Radio. But that doesn't preclude you from asking a question if you'd like to. So before we go to the break, I'll give you the numbers. 416-360-0740. Toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And still to come, the Sherman family's plea for privacy and the dangers of speculation. That's next on Zoomer Radio. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We're talking about the untimely and disturbing deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, the investigation and the reporting over the weekend, which included word from a police source that the case was being investigated as a murder-suicide. The family then came out and said this speculation couldn't be any further from the truth, and they pleaded with the media to stay away from speculation. Communications expert Laura Babcock joins our conversation now to discuss this angle, also in studio with me is security expert Ross McLean. Laura, welcome, and uh, Ross is still with us here. Thank you. Laura, was the media, and I'm speaking specifically of the newspapers because they have the resources, were they irresponsible in publishing word from an unnamed police source of a possible murder-suicide? Unfortunately, when it comes to such a high-profile shocking story like this. It's going to dominate headlines. And so what you're going to get is kind of a feeder effect where 
media sources are going to keep looking for angles, looking for anything that they can give in order to help to build the narrative. And so I think the family was very smart to come out and try to get a hold of that narrative as soon as they could to say, hold on, let's wait for a responsible investigation. They almost chided the police and said, you know, this has to be done responsibly. We don't believe that that's a theory that should be out there. Let's wait to see the facts come in. So I think the family was very smart to try to get ahead of that as soon as they could. But the fact remains that this is only going to get larger. Uh, To Ross's point earlier, we didn't see the kind of statement that gives a lot of kind of banal detail just to kind of tide people over while they wait for the rest of it. What we've seen is a very little from the police formally. It's led to a lot of speculation, and so the media is going to do what the media does. They know everyone's interested. The interest will only grow on this, Jane. I mean, many people might have been away for the weekend, and they're waking up to this news this morning, and people are going to start to play amateur detective and try to figure it out, and social media will take on its own life. And so what you're going to find is that we're going to need from both the police and the family to work together now to try to be very careful, very judicious, very, um, you know, detailed as much as they can be without having any other theories kind of float out there and get ahead of this family. Because, of course, they're wanting to focus on, they should, the legacy of the life of these two individuals and not whatever emerges as the details of their death. And how much can they control that? I mean, by doing what they did on the weekend and trying to focus on the memories of their parents, how can they control the narrative even around the dinner table at cocktail parties? Because uh, like you, like me, like Ross, like everybody who's listening, this is what we were talking about on the weekend. Absolutely. And it's very difficult to do that, especially in 2017, especially with social media, which is a horse out of the barn. It's going to go places. They they can't stop the immediate interest. A journalist right now is posting photos of the neighbors coming by the crime scene on their social media feed. They're also posting the responses for some of the people who are seeing that feed uh, and getting out on this, but the the fact is is you're not going to be able to stop interest. You're not going to be able to stop the speculation. The best that the family can do is the statement they sent where they said, let's wait and see. Let's let the professionals do their job. Let's hope the professionals do it professionally. I'm paraphrasing there, but basically you know, let's stop with this rampant speculation about the worst possible scenarios here and let's just wait and see out of respect. And I think that that may, in fact, give people a little bit of pause and may make people think, okay, hold on, let's just wait for the police. The other thing that they can do is they can be working with the police. You don't want to start this kind of um, back and forth between the police and a a family that's in shock. You want to make sure that going forward, any statements that come out publicly are carefully done with the police as well. And I think that will help to keep a little bit more of a lid on it. When it looks as though there's a fight going on or the police aren't doing what they should be, then that just fuels, you know, the the social media machine and the commentary and everything else. So I think the family and the police working together in their next public statement is probably the best move they can make. Yes, I mean, we're we're looking at uh, four different parties involved here. talk in talking about this in communicating about this we have the police we have the family we have the news media and we have the public so let's start first with the police in terms of the way that they have disseminated the information and the amount that they have do you think that they have handled it right so far and where do they go from here you're saying jointly with the family yeah what you would expect to see with something this high profile is some sort of a joint presser, or at least the police speaking and having someone there to speak on behalf of the family, if not the family themselves, 
making statements where they are giving an update. And now it can be the president, you know, it can be the police do theirs, and then the family issues a statement in conjunction with that. But the idea is, as much as they can be seen to be releasing information in a way that shows respect to the family and gives sufficient detail at this point in the investigation, that that's helpful, right? A little bit more meat on the bone would be helpful in terms of the commentary, because what you've got right now is just the cause of death, which is itself, as Ross pointed out, open to all kinds of different, uh, you know, interpretations that people can be asking a bunch of questions about that. It adds more questions to the narrative rather than less. So hopefully when the police feel they can come forward with more detail, uh, that'll be very helpful if the family is, of course, apprised of that detail and they can then put forward their own statement, that will help. But those are much more, you can much more control the public statements coming from police and the family than you can, of course, what the media will find out uh, on their own. And, and, of course, the public speculation is very different. The court of public opinion is much more difficult to manage than, you know, getting out official statements. So, you know, I don't think that the family can necessarily control that, but they can certainly focus on the legacy, on the descriptions of this couple, the fact that so many high-profile people are coming out with comments about what a wonderful part of the community they were and how much they helped Canada. I think those kind of statements also being out there and as many as possible helps to balance at least the public discourse a little bit. And let me just ask Ross about that. Uh, how how um, likely is it or is it, is it the norm that in these kinds of situations the police and the family would issue a joint statement at a joint news conference? It's not, no, it's not normal, but it's not unheard of. We've seen n- numerous times where there's been uh, the family of homicide victims have come out to plead for uh, with the police to either on their own, as uh, Laura says, with the police follow or together to ask for help uh, in solving the problem or in making a plea about something or give a donation here or some such thing. So I, I think that's where it's going to have to end up. And Laura, with regards to the media, the news media, uh, of which I'm a part, I, I mean, certainly my personal reaction as as a news journalist on the weekend was, you know what? The family's privacy ranks a little higher than my need to uh, find somebody who will speculate on how they died. I don't know if we've just lost Laura there, but maybe we could get her back. Uh, And Ross, maybe you could um, comment on that. I mean... The news media, we do what we do. We try to we try to get the story. But is there an exception to that rule when it's appropriate not always to go for the full story prematurely, let's say? Yeah, that's a hard one to call because, as you said, the you know news media goes everywhere from someone with a blog right up into the biggest media conglomerates for doing something, and they get a voice. And what we've seen a lot happen these days, uh, just in general, not particularly here, is is one person will report something, and then you see it. So it's been reported that everybody else, it's okay to say things then because someone else has reported it. Yes, and then you don't really know the source of where it came from. And quite often, you know, the one thing that I try and give, and I appreciate when you guys have me in here at uh, Zoomer, is I try to give context to what's going on, not just the the little pit, you know, bit that's exciting or sounds like a zip, if you will, to make something go. I like to give context. Even sometimes, if that maybe rains a little on the story, I don't mind, because usually I find context, though, for most people, enhances it for them. They, they learn more, and they can learn to see other issues differently the next time themselves. Laura, we lost you there, but I know we've got you back. Uh, I was just asking about the news media and getting the story out versus respecting the privacy of the family. 
As you know, there's a, a broader context for all news media in the last couple of years, and that is to be seen to be very, very careful with facts or they get accused of fake news. And so I think all newsrooms, especially on a high-profile case like this, want to make sure that they're not just leaping forward to get the scoop, that they, in fact, have something more uh, that they can back it up with. That being said, this is still going to get lots and lots of coverage. There will be exposés. There will be possibly down the line friends talking here and there. The media are going to keep pursuing a story that has national and international import like this one does. So, you know, the family, if I were working with the family, the it's, it's to understand and set correct expectations. There is going to be stuff that will come out. It might not be factual. It might be premature. Uh, and there will be a pushback against this. It's proven to be false. The media will try to do the best that it can, but in a case like this, you're going to get some ambition maybe in the mix. You're going to get some off-the-record sources that are going to bring things up. And so what the family doesn't want to do is to get in a position of overreacting. Uh, you don't want to keep adding fuel to this and have it build up into a, a large scandal. You want to sort of take it as it comes, understanding that some of it is going to be hard to see and maybe even inaccurate. Um, but ultimately, one would hope that the media would be careful with this uh, because of, as I mentioned, the, the, the uh, accusation potential of fake news, but also in respect for this family. Um, but at the same time, unfortunately, there's going to be some stuff that will probably come up and it'll be difficult to see. And you, you have to kind of prepare yourself and gird yourself for that. You mentioned, and rightly so, as we did off the top of the show, uh, how much Barry and Honey Sherman will be missed by their many, many causes that they supported. Being billionaires, they were able to give millions and millions of dollars to help various causes, including health care, higher education, the Jewish community. How big a hole uh, do they leave um, with philanthropy in, in this country? And how, how does that get filled, Laura? Well, that's an excellent question, and, and uh, I, I don't have the answer to that, but I will say from a public relations point of view, what I think is helpful when you've got this emerging story narrative um, is for those organizations that did benefit from their generosity, that did experience their philanthropy, that did understand the leadership that they provided uh, and the impact it made on them, for them to you know post their statements. Because it might sound kind of technical, but it matters. You know, when people are hearing about this story, they're going to jump on maybe Twitter, do a search on the name, and then what fills up the feed, if it's just speculation around the cause of death, then that starts to create an impression. It's so important that all those other comments, the ones that we've seen for the Prime Minister and others, that they also get posted, that organizations come forward and speak to what this couple has done. I think that's good for the community. I think it's good for the organizations. It's certainly good for the couple's legacy. Uh, and, you know, that may, in fact, inspire other people to step up and help fill that void. If they see just how many organizations were impacted, uh, you know, they may, in fact, say, hey, there's an opportunity for me to get involved. Thank you both very much. Ross McLean, uh, security expert and communications expert. Laura Babcock with giving us uh, the bigger picture. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. Great. Still to come and coming up next, we're going to change topics and go stateside for the latest salvos in the Trump Mueller story. That's next on Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.